We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you? What's going on, man? Oh, just doing great. Another beautiful day in sunshine, L.A. You're not so fortunate, are you? No, not at all. It's cold. It's getting colder and colder. So tell us who our guest is today. Oh, a beautiful actress of the newly released Accursed, Isabella Vidovich. Uh, She is known for her movies, uh, Homefront, Wonder, Zombie, the Freeforms TV series, The Fosters. And she's a daughter of a filmmaker, Elizabeth, Elizabella Vidovich. <laughs> Very similar name. Welcome to the show, Elizabella. Thank Hi, Isabella. You. How are you? Appreciate I'm doing great. How are you? Fantastic. So let's talk about it. I guess because it was in the family, did you always want to be an actress? No, no. I, uh, I, it kind of happened like by, by a fluke, um, <laughs> but I, I love it. Um, yeah, it was kind of a funny story, but I fell into it and I love it. And, you know, here we are 10 years later. <laughs> Flukes are nice. Tell us about the fluky story. I honestly, I've always loved performing, you know, I've always loved singing and, and I was always very, um, outgoing. Uh, and then when I was seven or eight years old, I was at a, a party, uh, an Easter party with my family and a singing coach had heard me sing and I was, very precocious and um, performance oriented. And he suggested (laughs) that I audition uh, for an agent. And my mom was a little weary because she's in film and, you know, to put her kid in acting, she wasn't sure, but I auditioned and I loved it. And, you know, the rest is history, I guess. The rest is history. (laughs) Exactly. So in that process, did you feel that you were going to be able to do this? You said first you didn't want to do it. Then you did. What made you start to love it? Um, it wasn't that I didn't like want to, uh, I wasn't forced into it. I just never sought it out, I guess, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, I tried it out cause I was, uh, I was willing to try anything out and I ended up just falling in love with it. Um, but I wasn't forced into it. You know, I just, I just ended up being given the opportunity, which was very fortunate. So was your mother always watching you and guiding you and making sure you didn't fall into those pitfalls that so many young actresses fall into? She was my mom <laughs> and my, uh, my mentor for, you know, 12, well, forever, really, but for acting for over 10 years now. But that was a good thing, right? Yeah. I, I mean, very lucky. Not a lot of people can say that it's right in their family. Yeah. Not the typical stereotype stage mom. No, not at all. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about uh, what was your one of your favorite roles in your career? Which one would you say? Favorite roles in my career. Uh, That's always such a hard question. Um, I would say um, one of my favorite roles may have been one that I just did. Actually, it was on a Disney Plus show called Just Beyond that came out um, in October of this year. So it's very recent. And it's an anthology series. So every episode is, you know, different cast, different story. And that one was just really wild. Like I, I completely transformed my look. I had to wear prosthetics. So um, I think that was just the most intriguing role that I've gotten to do. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, what do you think you're most known for? So you talked about the one, your favorite, what do you think most known? Probably wonder a film that I did in, what was that 2016? I think it, and it came out 2017. Great. All right, Dave, next question. When did you like go toward the horror genre? 
No. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so we're talking about The Accursed. So yeah. The Accursed just came out uh, November 12th. And, you know, The Accursed has been in the works since 2017. Really? Did COVID slow it down? No, it just, uh, no, actually, we got very lucky. It did not slow it down. We, well, a little bit, but we ran an Indiegogo campaign for it in 2017, which is when I hopped on as a producer. And then we got the rest of the funds. And in 2019, we filmed it. So right before the pandemic. And then we were in post-production during the pandemic. And then, you know, now it's out in 2021. But uh, I, I love the horror genre. I just, I never... I never got cast in it. And then <laughs> we so, had one here and I was like, fabulous. Exactly. And why do you, um, that process took longer. You think it's just basically just getting the right people in place, especially if you've been working on that project for a while. Yeah. I mean, you know, we started fundraising in 2017 and raising funds for an indie film is its biggest challenge. So exactly. yeah. we got it by 2019 and, and filmed it with a really great group of people. Where do you see indie films going now, especially with COVID? Because it's more expensive now to film indie films. You got to have more money, more precautions need to be put in place. And mm -hmm. you think there's been less indie films after COVID, or is it starting to pick up again in your take? I think it's starting to pick up again. I think that indie filmmaking has been on a steady rise for a long time. And I think now with the emergence of so many different kinds of technologies, like you can, you don't really have to spend as much money to film a movie anymore. You can do it on your phone. You can, you know, there's so many different mediums that are available to people now. So I think that indie films are, are now a highly competitive market. You're so young and yet you're producing this film. Is this your first uh, film you're producing or no? It's the first feature film I've produced, but I did some shorts. So how did you get that opportunity? Because my mom, again, you'll see she comes up a lot. <laughs> uh, she founded Almost Normal Productions, which is the production company. That Almost Normal, her. great name. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I founded it in 2010. And then obviously I was just a youngin back then, as if I'm not now. But uh, in 2017, I, I kind of wanted to hop on officially when I was, I was 16 and I wanted to hop on and actually go through the process of producing a project and the accursed was already in the works. And so I just, I just decided to give it a go. Exactly. And more, more and more actors. So, so, so I want to uh, go, Dave, you go. Dave. I just want to say more and more actors uh, seem to want to get into acting, uh, not acting, producing and directing uh, in addition to acting, sometimes instead of acting, why is that trend? What is it that draws them to that? Uh, that's a good question. I think, at least for me, I think that I like having, I think, not you know, knowledge is power and being able to know the whole process of, of what goes into making a film uh, really helps me as an actor, because when I work on sets that I'm not working behind the scenes where I'm just in front of the camera, I like having the awareness of what's actually going on. Yeah, not just take. Blank yeah, site. exactly. With acting or replace cool. acting with producing. So tell us what, what it takes to be a producer. Give, go into like some of the process of producing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, you wear a lot of hats. Yeah. You wear a lot of hats as a producer. There's it's it's a lot more 
in it's a completely different type of creativity than acting. Although I think my my mom and Catherine would argue that producing is not creative at all <laughs> because they directed and wrote the film. But you know, I think that uh, producing requires you you have to put a whole project together. You have to get it off ground. You have to put all the, you know, because filmmaking is like a, like a, like a machine, like you've got to get all the moving parts together. And that's what a producer does. So I think that when I got into producing, it made me really appreciate what it takes to make a movie and get it on the big screen. Um, so, you know, you go from the fundraising to the, from the development, to the fundraising, to the pre-production, to the uh, filming to the post-production and then to the marketing and distribution phase. So you've really got to see the whole project through. Um, and I think it just takes a lot of patience and a lot of grind. <laughs> now I'm, I'm a dummy. So how does producing uh, different from directing? Uh, because a producer, you know, you're involved from the beginning to the end, not that a director isn't, but I think that directors often get attached once the funding is in place uh, sometimes not, but you know, you, the director doesn't have anything to do usually with like getting the funds and then also with marketing the film and getting distribution. That's not really in the director's wheelhouse the director. It's very creative. You know, you're there to, to, to bring the film to life, but not necessarily to, um, to get the whole team together. And there are some producer directors as well, where they do both. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Elizabeth and Catherine who, who directed the occurrence, they also produced it. Uh, so definitely, I don't know that I would want to produce and direct. I think that's a <laughs> So what do you think the difference, defining the difference between directing, producing, then we're going to get to a curse. I'm just interested in this because always I interview directors and producers and I really kind of think I understand the difference, uh -huh. but what is the difference? The main difference, I think that directing is, is incredibly creative and I think producing is very technical. I think as a producer, you're forced to uh, like I said, you're forced to bring everything together. You're dealing with things like paperwork and 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 fundraising and and all the nitty gritty. Whereas a director, you really shouldn't be worrying about all of that. So the producer is almost close to like the owner of the film, but they have more power in certain ways. While the director is the one that gives the whole idea of what the creative needs to look like. Yeah, the director is the one who's 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 bringing the vision of the film to life which is those great directors that we've heard about in our careers that say the wow ones that have just done such amazing things. And a lot of times the director's never one that had the script, never was the one that cast everything that, or the directors cast it, but it has seized the vision and is able to get the vision to where it needs to be. Then production gets the final product out, right? You're looking at the post pre-production, post-production and final distribution. That's the producers. Yes, definitely. I mean, directors and producers are equally as important. It's just that one is is focusing on actually creating the film that you end up seeing, the visual and the creative aspect of it. But without the producer, the director wouldn't be able to do their job. So right. when does the producer win the argument and when does the director win the argument? <laughs> I think it really depends project to project. I think it depends on the relationship. Ideally, the director and the producer get along especially if they are one person <laughs> i know so i think that ultimately it just depends on on the relationship the the you yeah. know the relationship between uh each individual producer and director but i think it's it's it you know it should be uh it should be collaborative so it's Everybody, technical versus creative and and it's that battle 
but everybody's working towards the same thing. Like, you know, you should be collaborating and not clashing too much, hopefully. The director's almost like the head coach in a way with all the people around it. Uh, the assistant coaches really are doing the job. The head coach is the one that comes up with the game plan, but without all those other coaches, like in, think about in, in football, they you wouldn't have a team if you didn't have a good offensive coordinating coach. All those exactly. things. Exactly. So you're saying the head coach is the producer? No, director. 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 Definitely, definitely the head coach <laughs> is the director. Because he is directing the plan of what's done, but if without everyone behind the scenes and what takes to get a film out. All right, let's talk about The Accursed now. Tell yeah. us about uh, the premise. I watched the trailer. It seems really scary. I want to definitely see it. So, uh, tell me a little <laughs> bit about it. Yeah. Yeah, you love uh, horror movies. Well, in a nutshell, The Accursed is about a woman, Hannah, who spends two decades suppressing a curse that can annihilate her whole bloodline. So <laughs> it's pretty morbid. Uh, and somebody in the family releases that curse. So, you know, all hell breaks loose. But there's a point in the movie where you're kind of rooting for the ghost. Uh, what's that about? Well, I can't give too much away. (laughs) We like to tell stories about multifaceted characters, even ghosts. (laughs) So the ghost was a person at one point and she is now back and she is back for some vengeance. And you feel some sympathy. You do feel some sympathy because, you know, nobody is is seeking vengeance for no reason. Hmm. So let's talk about do you believe in the paranormal? Do I believe? Yeah, I do believe in. I believe in ghosts. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and in certain ways, some people do, some people don't, and then some of it is, you know, not real, and some of it is. So, you know, you see these different paranormal shows. What do you think makes fear such an important thing that people want to have to watch and do those things? What do you think it is that love horror movies, love the paranormal? What is the excitement? I think it's because of the unknown what do you think well i mean people watch movies it's a form of escapism right so i think that some people like watching comedies they like to laugh as a form of relief and i think others are kind of adrenaline junkies and like being on the edge of their seat and being distracted in that way and i think that horror films offer their own type of relief at least for me like when i'm watching a horror film no matter what's going on in my life, no matter where I'm at, how busy, whatever, that is all I can, I can think about because it's, it's all consuming. Like if it's a good film, you know, and it's interesting. Comedy is more my escapism. I enjoy horror, but comedy is my, my thing in certain ways to laugh. And I think that anytime you and I want things that get my brain off of things because of the, the amount of time that's laser focused on different things. So it's to each its own. I think all forms of entertainment, as long as it's good entertainment is interesting. It's just interesting to see how that develops and grows for sure. And what do you think for horror fans, why they should see the accursed? Give us that, that reason. Yeah, go ahead. I think that uh, for horror fans, the accursed is unique. It's different. Uh, It still has all of the horror elements that you're looking for. If you like witchcraft, if you like magic, paranormal, it's all in there. It's got your classic jump scares, but it's also something that you haven't seen before because it's told against an Eastern European backdrop. So it's got interesting kinds of lore that I find unique. And as somebody who likes horror, I like watching films that have done something that I haven't seen before because... It's difficult in a genre that's done virtually 
like everything, you know? All right. So Dave has his final questions involving caregiving, and it'll be interesting to see, to uh, <laughs> hear your answer. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, to someone who believes in ghosts. Um, so I'm a caregiver. My wife had a stroke 25 years ago. She lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And we, we struggled for a couple of years, you know, the grief process. But she decided, hey, God still has me around. I'm, I'm going to reinvent myself. I'm going to do everything I did before, which was a lot, you know. And so now she's amazing. She's like a cross between Martha Stewart, Wonder Woman, like a one-arm wallpaper hanger. She, I come home, the, the food's on the table, the laundry's done, uh, the house is clean, et cetera. Wow. So I've, I've learned how to not make mistakes. And so now I'm Caregiver Dave and I, I help other caregivers not make the same mistakes I made because 30% of caregivers actually die before their loved ones do it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very stressful job. So my question is, you're so young. Have you had any experience with uh, caregiving with uh, maybe your grandparents? No, I haven't. I can't no? say Lucky that. you. <laughs> no, no, I am. My, uh, I have not had any, any experience caregiving. Yeah, because as, as, our, as our elderly loved ones get older, you know, maybe you have some friends who are caring for some parents who are, you know, having some problems, et cetera. It, I say it's it's inevitable. I mean, if you're either going to become a caregiver or need a caregiver one day. And so just put that in the no, back of your mind. Know, I'm really close, you know, very, very close to my family. So my, but my, I'm in LA with my immediate family, my parents and my sister, but the rest of my family is out in Bosnia. And wow. so wow. grandparents, uh, my grandfather died seven or eight years ago, but I do have three of my grandparents and they're all healthy and well, thankfully. So, Good. you know, naturally if there was a need for caregiving, obviously we would be now, there. If you're for communicating them. with them, that's a form of caregiving. The older people get, especially grandparents, lonely. The, the, yeah. the, having those conversations with them is a form of caregiving because you're giving mm -hmm. them that time that might they need to spend time to hear from you and things like that. So that's a form of caregiving as well, I believe, in a, in a way some people are close to that person and helping them, but the other form of caregiving is making those phone calls, doing those to-do lists, helping them in other ways. And that's a form of caregiving sometimes, Dave, that I'm sure you bring up on your show for sure. Absolutely. So, so that's important. So where can we go connect? The film is out now. Is it available on VOD now as well? It is available on VOD. You can just, honestly, for all of the platforms that it's available on, you can go on the company's website, which is almostnormalproductions.com. But it's, and you'll see all the platforms, but it's available on iTunes, Vudu, YouTube movies, Amazon, uh, Google Play, all kinds of platforms, so... It's crazy. Yeah, but everyone needs to check it out if you're a horror fan. Appreciate you coming by, and thanks again for taking the time as well. Appreciate it. So much for having me. Take care. Bye -bye. All right. All right, guys, that was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. Guys, take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Christopher Hall Show, also on the Neil Haley Show, simulcast with the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome to the program, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? Again, Nobel Prize nominated uh, doctor, also an author. How are you? And we have a really exciting guest today, Chris. Tell us who our guest is. Well, yeah, I'm doing great, Neil. And uh, yeah, this is uh, a really exciting time, actually, uh, of the year and, and what's going on here so far as this pandemic. And uh, I'm very excited about the guest that we have today. Excellent. So introduce him, please. Well, no problem. Well, you know, it's my honor uh, to introduce uh, one of uh, America's foremost, actually, uh, quoted cardiologists, uh, 
And um, uh, so far as his research, so far as uh, what he's done, his uh, his uh, papers have been downloaded, uh, particularly uh, in, in related to the coronavirus, uh, more than any other papers here uh, in the world. And uh, and so um, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, let Dr. Peter McCullough uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Dr. McCullough, uh, so far as your training and um, kind of what, you know, when this pandemic came on, what we had to do. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm Dr. Peter McCall. I'm an academic internist, cardiologist. I'm a trained epidemiologist in Dallas, Texas. I'm in clinical practice, spend about half my time seeing patients uh, as I did all day yesterday, and then uh, half the time doing uh, academic work. I'm an editor of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. I'm the former editor of Cardiorenal Medicine, senior associate editor of the American Journal of Cardiology. And, and I'm an author. I have uh, over 51 papers uh, on the pandemic. Uh, for COVID-19. Uh, these are uh, peer-reviewed, fully cited in the National Library of Medicine, and then 650 papers total on the interface between heart and kidney disease and other general medical topics. I do produce a report to America each week on America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, and I'm a frequent contributor. A lot of your listeners will recognize me uh, to Fox News, Newsmax, OAN, uh, and the major media. And the reason why I'm so active is that I really feel that uh, myself and many in my circles, that is really, this pandemic is calling for the top doctors in America to step up and provide leadership uh, through the pandemic, interpreting data, finding new ways of treating patients, provide, preventing hospitalization and death, and now handling the issue of mass vaccination. Wow, very, 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 uh, very impressive. So, and you know, we have a lot uh, to talk about, uh, uh, but I wanted to start with some very basic questions. You know, myself, uh, doctor, I always ask these, these, these simple questions, okay? And so, uh, Dr. McCullough, tell us a little bit about kind of um, where you're from and why you decided to go into medicine. Um, I was a kid, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, but moved down when I was young to, to Texas, originally Wichita Falls in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, I went on to Baylor University. And uh, from the very beginning, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I love science. I loved the application of science to help uh, patients and people in need. And uh, I, I had no other uh, career ideas outside of being a doctor after Baylor. I went to University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, still in the probably the top 25 medical schools in the United States. I finished top of my class, AOA, and then went on to the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, at the time and still today, number one medicine training program in the United States, just ahead of the Harvard programs. And like at that, after that juncture, like many other people at the university did service, many of my fellow residents became DC officers or went into the military. I did a, a three-year period of time in rural health service in the north, uh, northern part of Michigan. Third year of that, I went to the University of Michigan School of Public Health and then on into training uh, in cardiology at what's now the William Beaumont. Uh, Oakland University School of Medicine. We did groundbreaking research on primary angioplasty for acute MI. We had an iconic leader there, William O'Neill. Our publications, uh, we really uh, lit up the world with our New England Journal of Medicine publications on this new way of treating myocardial infarction. And I remember great skepticism back then when we said we could get the artery open, and that was better than giving thrombolytics. Thrombolytics was controlled by the, um, by the pharmaceutical industry. 
uh, and we had to fight a, an uphill battle of conflicts of interest against all the major academic institutions, which were in bed with big pharma as the community hospitals were with the breaking things wide open with primary angioplasty. And here we are today now with COVID-19, uh, all the academic institutions are completely aligned with uh, the big pharmaceutical industry on the plan for mass vaccination and then selective drugs in the hospital. And we're breaking it wide open uh, with the use of uh, many drugs uh, inappropriately uh, utilized off-label uh, uh, clinically indicated medically necessary prescription to treat COVID-19. Very, very true. And uh, and so kind of uh, what you're trying to say is that you've kind of had the struggle before and that was certainly more in uh, the sort of cardiology. Again, we will have more infectious disease. So uh, let's just ask some pointed questions uh, uh, for Dr. McCullough. And so one of the things, uh, you know, myself being a doctor, I'm an ER physician for, for a number of years. And so when this virus first came out, uh, what we saw uh, was that pretty much patients were receiving no treatment. And um, again, so tell us, tell us about that. When you uh, encountered that juncture, Dr. McCullough, what, what did you think? I think initially what happened was uh, many doctors were fearful of getting the virus themselves. I can tell you personally, none of my patients were denied treatment. My patients that were high risk, that were high risk for hospitalization and death, from the very beginning, not a single patient was denied treatment. And you know, we think about 500 doctors in the United States can make that claim. A million doctors let the virus slaughter some of their patients. A million doctors did that. Historians are going to record this. Wow. Historians record that doctors were gripped in fear. They were paralyzed by this virus. They thought they were going to get it themselves. They were even afraid to get on the phone with patients. And then after that, things basically became what's called, now we understand it as called a mass formation psychosis, meaning that the doctors now are in a, a form of psychosis where they uh, uh, don't treat COVID-19. Uh, they do a, a very minimalistic job in the hospital. There's terrible outcomes in the hospital, and they are completely in lockstep in administering the vaccine as the only response to the pandemic as we see the vaccine uh, in wholesale failure. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. I agree. I, I totally agree with you on that. And um, and so, um, again, and, and what I saw, really, what I saw was that, uh, and something that we, we haven't really seen in history, you know, typically uh, finding novel treatments where, where, where drugs are were used for maybe off-brand drugs for other, other illnesses that, you know, that we find uh, uh, in our uniqueness to treat new diseases that come on. We're normally praised for those kind of things. But I saw in this atmosphere that we were threatened. Our livelihood was threatened. Our uh, certifications were threatened, licenses. And, uh, and so, um, it's just, uh, and then we know now, we're seeing data that comes out now, we know how bad this vaccine is for, uh, for our organs and our bodies, our heart, the brain, the kidneys. Um, and this is all, again, related to what uh, uh, we know now uh, from a lot of studies, the um, effects of the spike protein. So Dr. McCullough, speak a little bit on that. Speak about this whole thing of the spike protein. I still think the public uh, doesn't quite have full understanding. Well, we know we're in a mass psychosis because doctors and, uh, and you know, health systems and companies and schools that are recommending the vaccine, you know that they're in a sense kind of in a mental fog because they don't even, rec they don't even recognize that there's three vaccines. They say literally take any vaccine. Well, I can tell you there's three vaccines. The best vaccine for uh, preventing COVID-19 is Moderna. 
it's 100 micrograms of messenger RNA is three times the dose of Pfizer at 30 micrograms. And, uh, and then both Pfizer and Moderna are better than J&J. So those in the mass psychosis are not even recommending the best vaccine to prevent COVID-19. That shows you how ridiculous this is. And do you know that? Do you know almost every health system recommends any vaccine? They actually don't even care which one that people take. Isn't it stunning? Even the federal government doesn't care, but yet there's one in every single analysis, Moderna has better outcomes than the other vaccines. Now, having said that, on the downside, the vaccines all cause a mosaic of cells that take up the genetic material. These are gene transfer technology uh, platforms. They take up the genetic material, a mosaic of cells, and it's different for each person as the lipid nanoparticles are distributed to vital organs like the brain, the heart, uh, the bone marrow. Uh, so each person's different. So their side effects are different. The cells start to produce the spike protein. This is a 1200 amino acid protein, has about 12 glycosylation attachments. It's got some uh, code in it that actually codes uh, in part for the glycoprotein for uh, HIV. It has a gain of function mutation, uh, uh, human uh, uh, change in the uh, what's called the furin cleavage joint that was uh, devised between the US government, uh, NIH, and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This dangerous 1200 amino acid protein is actually produced within human bodies now intentionally by the vaccine induced. Uh, production of the protein. And now we know everything we've learned about the spike protein since the release of the vaccines is bad. It's 100% bad. We now know the spike protein directly damages blood vessels and causes blood clotting independently. We know that it directly damages the heart. It damages pericytes, paper by Avolio and colleagues have shown that it directly causes myocarditis and the FDA agrees with official warnings on Pfizer and Moderna. It directly causes blood clotting and the FDA agrees as there are official warnings on J&J. &J. Uh, it directly causes other illnesses, including vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea uh, as uh, published in multiple scientific reports, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Annals of Hepatology. It directly causes uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome and the FDA agrees uh, with warnings on J&J. &J. It directly causes um, uh, uh, forms of uh, various uh, neurologic injuries, uh, additionally outside of Guillain-Barre, including Bell's palsy, uh, a spinal uh, transverse myelitis. In fact, Senator Johnson's most recent press briefing on vaccine injuries, it was a, a paralyzed uh, orthopedic surgeon uh, who gave his testimony. So all, everything we've learned about the spike protein is incredibly damaging to the body. And I think the, 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 the shoe really dropped with a, a very important paper produced by Bruce Patterson, July 29th, 2021 in preprint presented at the Rome uh, COVID summit in September, showing that after the respiratory infection, the S1 segment is of the spike protein is recoverable in, in CD16 positive human monocytes for up to 15 months after the respiratory infection. And now Bruce Patterson, who's a brilliant molecular biologist trained at University of Michigan, Northwestern's been a faculty at Stanford. Bruce on the McCullough Report, America Law Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, on my interview this weekend, which is now in podcast currently, he basically presented the data that after the vaccine, it's even worse that the S1 and the S2 segment are recoverable in samples from people months after the vaccine. So what I'm telling you is the vaccine almost certainly gives about 15 months or more of spike protein coverage in the body was shot one and then shot two another 15 months. If you're immunocompromised, shot three another month later, another 15 months. And then once we get into every six month injections, the spike protein is gonna accumulate in critical organs like the brain, 
the heart, the bone marrow. And I can tell you, it's almost certainly gonna cause chronic disease. The spike protein is not a benign substance and it takes forever to clear out of the human body. Dr. McCullough, this is amazing information you're bringing out on uh, the Dr. Christopher Hall show. The concern I have is why is this not coming out more? Like that the, if we continue to do MNR, mRNA shots, that the jab, it's going to end up really causing a lot more health issues than just stopping COVID, meaning other, other health problems are going to happen. It, it's true. What we know, I mean, some of the really concerning things beyond the chronic neurologic illnesses and uh, the myocarditis and the heart damage, as well as the hematologic syndromes, what we're really worried about is a paper from China showing that the S2 segment of the spike protein interacts with the P53 tumor suppressor gene and the BRCA gene. And women know this because the BRCA gene is related to breast cancer and female reproductive cancers. What we know there is that with progressive spike protein accumulation, we have great concerns on what's called oncogenesis or the development of cancer. And so there is a situation, there is an immediate warning uh, that's out now in the popular press and through all of our uh, various forms of communication to the world that progressive every six month vaccination is going to lead to chronic diseases, uh, almost certainly including cancers. Uh, we had word, I was on TV recently in Australia that they are planning for 14 shots per person. So that's seven years of progressive spike protein accumulation in the human body. Canada's planning on five years. Uh, this is an extraordinary loading of the human body with a pathogenic dangerous protein. It's going to lead to, I think, a population health disaster. Yeah, th this is, you know, this is horrible. Okay, this is horrible. Um, that, uh, you know, again, we, we, we had this early use authorization. So obviously these, these studies were never done. Uh, there's no safety data whatsoever uh, on these vaccines. And um, these, these vaccine shots, these boosters need to stop now. Uh, I'm not sure why uh, majority of our colleagues are uh, having this fog and this uh, psychosis. Uh, when clearly, uh, one of the things we do as physicians is we think logically and uh, we make our decisions based on the scientific method. And so, wow, this, this is just incredible. Uh, but um, I tell you one thing, um, as a physician, as a doctor, as a citizen, I am, um, I, just, I just feel so honored and great to have Dr. McCullough uh, quarterbacking, okay? Uh, in this time where, you know, this is actually the Super Bowl for doctors. Uh, and so it's just a travesty. So, Well, you know, many doctors have taken the vaccine. In fact, they're now taking boosters. So, um, you know, I, I have a great uh, a sadness and, and, uh, and empathy for them uh, as these syndromes uh, set in. I recently uh, was sitting on an airplane and I was flying back from symposium, I was looking at my slides and the woman sitting next to me started asking me questions about COVID. Her husband next door to her, he was in a fetal position. He looked awful. He had just taken the Pfizer booster. 
And I asked him, I said, you know, what's it like compared to shot one and shot two? He said, it's so much worse. <laughs> I told him, listen, get up and move around. I'm worried you're going to form a deep venous thrombosis. This guy looked terrible. And after I presented her the data, I showed her the safety data. You know, we're at over 18,000 deaths in VARES. We know from two reports, one from Rose, one from McLaughlin, that if these deaths in VARES, half of them domestic, we know that 48% 40, 40%, 50% uh, of the deaths occur within 48 hours, 80% of deaths occur within a week. Uh, they're strongly temporary related to the shots. It's externally consistent. Same thing you see in the yellow card system and the uterus system. Uh, we know uh, from McLaughlin that 86% of the deaths have no other explanation. The vaccine is the smoking gun leading to record numbers of acute deaths. But the great concern now is that in those who survive the, the shots, that now there's going to be this progressive accumulation of, of spike protein. And I know people are doing it in part of the mass psychosis is they think that the vaccine prevents the development of COVID-19. And what we know now is our CDC director has told us it doesn't stop transmission. We have data from Rimerisma from University of Wisconsin and the Department of Public Health there showing vaccinated, unvaccinated, they're equally as infectious. Uh, they have equal and high viral loads of the Delta variant. A Acharyan from University of California, Davis, showed the same thing, asymptomatic, presymptomatic, and symptomatic equal viral loads. So the vaccinated are clearly carrying around the virus and spreading it to others. We know this because in Israel, everyone's vaccinated and boosted in over 90% of Israelis with COVID-19. They've got plenty of COVID, are fully vaccinated with boosters. Uh, same thing for those being hospitalized and dying. We know from the 46th UK Public Health Service report that over 80% of those with COVID-19 and who are dying are fully vaccinated. So it's clear the vaccines uh, don't have an impact. I looked at the data carefully, and I think to be fair to the vaccines, a paper by Cohn and colleagues from the VA showed a minimal benefit on mortality, about a one to 2% absolute difference. A lot of this was selection bias. Those who take the vaccine are more likely to survive even if they don't get COVID. But the point is there was some measurable benefit through the first few months of the vaccine program, but it fell off a cliff. And what they showed in the cone study by February, the vaccine protection absolutely fell off a cliff. And two things happened then. In February, most people who took the vaccine hit a six-month anniversary. We now we have 22 studies showing the vaccines run out of gas after six months. They don't have any protection. And then the second thing that happened by September is we're fully shaded in on Delta. The Delta variant is largely resistant to the vaccines, particularly Pfizer. This is amazing, wow. Dr. Hall, and it's stuff that we've been talking about on the show and I've been hearing, but we're hearing it from the horse's mouth, from his research and what you've been seeing. How can people that, I guess we're seeing a split now in this country, right? If someone should become vaccinated or not vaccinated, are you seeing many doctors like yourself speaking out or are they fearful of, of speaking out about what you've been finding? Most doctors, their thinking isn't clear enough to speak out. So they're confused. Again, they're in this mass psychosis. They know they're doing something wrong. They know something is wrong, but they're almost like in a trance. It would be similar to the Nazi Germany doctors who were performing eugenics and other things. They kind of knew at a, at a brainstem or midbrain level that, that they were doing something wrong, but they couldn't, it couldn't get to their consciousness. Uh, so uh, we, we see it all the time. Doctors can't uh, they can't engage with a doctor who's got a clear interpretation of the data. In fact, millionaire Steve Kirsch in our circles 
who funded the uh, COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund and now the COVID-19 Vaccine Injury Fund. Steve has gone around to medical school after medical school, public health agency, one after another, and has invited them to a roundtable to just have a discussion on vaccine safety and efficacy. And if they show up, he'll give them $2 million right on the table. Do you know no one will do it? No one will show up and make the case that the vaccines are safe and effective. So in their, again, deep in their brains, they know something is wrong. They know the vaccines don't work and they know they're not safe. And no, obviously no one uh, is, is uh, convinced enough to show up and claim $2 million. That should tell you a lot. Definitely. That, um, I'm sorry, definitely. That tells you everything, okay? When you start to put your money where your mouth is, that's when you start to, to get the truth. And so, you know, kind of um, a quick summary of what we've learned from, from Dr. McCullough. And, I, and I'll just make a, a number of points here. And obviously very uh, impressive and uh, uh, a, a physician with a lot of years of experience. And, uh, and so this spike protein is a product of the gain of function research in a Chinese lab. Again, we're injecting that uh, uh, the mRNA that codes for this protein. And this is something, again, that we've never done ever, ever in the history of this world. Okay. So the spike protein is a toxin. It's deadly. It deposits uh, in the brain, in the heart, uh, deposits in the uh, the ovaries because of the uh, the phospho-nanoparticles uh, is what we're finding. And so, yeah, pregnant women also are, are having miscarriage and are being affected. And so now what we see are these mandates, these mandates, which, again, are removing our rights. And for some reason, they're targeting the, the young kids. And we know, again, that uh, we, uh, uh, and Dr. McCullough can speak to this, I'm sure, that we've seen uh, a lot of uh, cases of myocarditis in the young kids. And so this is clearly one of the reasons why, uh, not only that, again, just the risk profile of, of what happens to children when they get this, 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 this virus, where they don't end up uh, severely sick or ill. And so uh, the risk is, is worth giving a, a young kid this vaccine. So um, what do you think about that, uh, Dr. McCullough? You, you can say a couple words on that, and then um, I guess we can uh, maybe get a summary. I'll get a little bit of summary here. So, For the pediatric... Yes, for the pediatric yes. meetings in September and October, the FDA heard these analyses from expert presenters in my circles, including uh, David Wiseman, who's a former uh, J&J scientist, a vaccine expert, uh, Kim Witzak, who's a, a public health and patient advocacy uh, um, expert, and many others who presented, uh, Peter Doshi, who's the associate director of the um, uh, British Medical Journal. We're talking top flight people. The analyses basically were the following. Tracy Hogue from UC Davis, uh, UC California Davis showed that a young person aged 12 to 17 is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis due to the vaccine than ever be hospitalized due to COVID-19, the respiratory illness. And Ron Kostev showed in Toxicology Reports published peer-reviewed literature at any age, one is more likely to die with the vaccine then taking your chances with COVID and dying with COVID. And that's due to what's called determinism, meaning when you take the vaccine, it's in your body, you can't get it out. If you pass on the vaccine, it doesn't mean you're gonna get COVID. The people contemplating taking the vaccine now are still susceptible. They've gone nearly two years and dodging COVID. Some people are gonna dodge COVID forever. They're never gonna get it. So um, we know that uh, the FDA didn't dispute these analyses and shockingly, 
what Dr. Rubin said, and he's the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. I can tell you, I'm the editor of another major journal, and I'm also, uh, uh, you know, at, a, at, a, at one of the highest echelons of all the academic doctors in the world. So I'll just tell him directly what he said was reprehensible. What he said at the meeting was the only way if we're going to find out about safety with the vaccines is to go ahead and try them in the kids. And he was commenting about children age five to 11. And we know in that age group, there's no clinical benefit. The registrational trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, recently. And I can tell you, there was no benefit. The vaccine basically prevented a few cases of the sniffles. There was no comment on spread. There was no serious illness in either the placebo or the vaccine group. The kids basically had less than a, a common cold with COVID-19. We would never subject kids to a vaccine uh, with that. What's part of the mass psychosis is to be honest with you, the vaccines aren't, not, aren't for the kids' benefit. The kids are being positioned as human shields. And in this distorted psychotic thinking, the masses of adults are saying vaccinate the kids and make them human shields uh, in this fear-driven psychosis that if the kids all get blasted with the vaccine, somehow that would protect the adults. Which it doesn't because you could still transmit. It's already out there, Peter and Dr. McCullough, and you're seeing flat out that's the reason. All right, uh, Dr. Hall, summarize uh, Peter McCull Dr. Peter McCullough, please. Well, no problem. We know uh, we've just actually been been graced, okay, with the uh, the presence, okay, of a foremost uh, expert here on um, COVID nineteen uh, infection, uh, the treatment of it. Again, uh, Dr. McCullough, he is the um, orchestrator of the McCullough Protocol, okay? Uh, the multifaceted um, sequential drug treatment, uh, treatment uh, for COVID. And so um, um, I would just like to thank Dr. McCullough for, for coming on the show today and for being a, a champion okay, of this cause for America uh, because clearly what he's done, his, his protocol, the McCullough Protocol has cut down that projected death rate. The CDC had projected that 1.7 million Americans would die, okay? But with Dr. McCullough's protocol, the number is at seven, 700,000. And so uh, it's just uh, awesome what he's done. So thank you, sir, uh, for coming on the show and for being a, a champion for Americans uh, and American hero for this cause. Thanks for having me. We appreciate it, Dr. McCullough. Take care. Best place people can connect with you is go where? Go to America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. All right. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Take care. Bye-bye. All, right. All right. That was the Dr. Christopher Hall Show, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of Freedom from Addiction, Truth, Just Below the Surface, and Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wen Henderson, MD. Wen, how are you? I'm doing good, Neil. And today's program is entitled, Putin Does Nasal COVID Vaccine. It is on cutting edge to use live virus as a nasal vector to induce immunity. The problem with nasal spray is the infection is inadequate. In the gut COVID infection uh, inoculation, it lasts for weeks. It would be safer and more effective to use live COVID uh, inoculation for one week than follow up with nasal spray. No published articles on whether gastrointestinal live COVID is better than COVID spike protein in influenza or retrovirus as a nasal spray. Putin is confident 
So he is experimenting on himself with nasal mucosal vaccine. Mucosal defense is the solution and mucosal defense with live flu virus in nasal spray is uh, being uh, studied in Hong Kong in a trial at the moment. Uh, we were unable uh, to get on our show today, Dr. Mark Hayden, who has been on the show many times talking about gastrointestinal um, inoculation, which he uh, scientifically researched and found to be much more effective and less dangerous than the uh, shots that they're giving. We hopefully will be able to get him on the show very shortly so that he can tell you from his perspective about this nasal COVID vaccine. In the meantime, keep coming back. We will get you truth just below the surface. The address is uh, freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. Spell Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N. No caps and no spaces. And uh, we'll see you next time. All right. That, so I want to add something really quickly. Uh, Dr. Hayden will definitely have to have on your program, not just uh, his his podcast that I co-host with him. And the latest news is he's cre he has a provisional patent on this whole uh, teaching other people or to explain to people how they can inoculate themselves. Very interesting point I asked him is whenever you do get COVID, when real COVID, not the shot, uh, that there has not been many people that have had second case of COVID-19. There's hardly a reported person at all. So we could end this right now very quickly uh, by going ahead and if people have not gotten COVID to do uh, Dr. Hayden, how he performed, how he ate live virus. If you consult your physician, that's the newest, latest news. And I'll definitely uh, put together what, ask him to put together talking points to come on your program. But that's what he did. And uh, that's the big thing. And to consult your physician, imagine how easily, you know, in the UK, when they refuse, uh, they say they're at herd immunity and they refuse to have any restrictions at all. They don't want to see it come back to the economy. So it's very interesting when we talk about this virus, we talk about each country, each state, how they're handling it, for sure. Well, Neil, um, Dr. Hayden, as you know, has been our guest many times on previous programs, bringing you his truth just below the surface. And when you come to our podcast, go back in the archives and pick up each of his programs, Mark Hayden, medical doctor, um, and, and listen to them because you're going to get a wealth of information. And at the time that it was given to you on our program, it was uh, not common knowledge. So we bring you truth just below the surface as early as we can get it to you. All right. See, that's the, that's the key thing. And isn't that a huge news, Mark? I mean, uh, when about Mark, Dr. Mark, again, going ahead and now allowing other people to swallow live virus if they get permission from their uh, physician. That'll be interesting to see what the physician's reactions are, right? You know, you go into your doctor when and say that, uh, you know, if you knew somebody that had COVID to swallow COVID, would you do that when? I, I don't know. I, I'd still have to think about it. If I knew somebody in my family or somebody I knew had COVID and to share their food or something. Well, uh, Neil, uh, 
Mark's going to tell you that uh, the symptoms of doing that are limited primarily to a little mild type diarrhea. Nothing that you should worry about. Things that many drugs that are uh, okay by the FDA has, and the um, uh, the um, ingestion of that in the gastrointestinal tract and everything gives you better immunity. So, you know, really, if you think about it, you, you got lots to gain and hardly anything to lose. And so listen, listen to Mark talk about it when he comes up next and go back and, and listen to his older programs because if you don't do your own research, the only thing that you're going to hear is a bunch of lies from people who have a agenda that they want to push. And they're going to tell you just the opposite of what the truth is. All right. So that was again, freedom from addiction, truth, just below the surface of the Neil Haley show. Take care guys. Hi everyone. And welcome to the special edition of freedom from addiction, truth, just below the surface and the Neil Haley show. I'm excited to welcome the program Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? I'm doing good, Neil. Today's program is what Vermont tells us about the mRNA shots. At this point, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence showing that COVID shots are not working. What little protection you do get clearly wanes within a handful of months and may leave you worse off than you were before. We're seeing data to this effect from a number of different places. In the United States, we can look at Vermont um, at nearly 72% vaccinated. It has the highest rate of fully vaccinated residents in the country, according to ABC News. Yet, COVID cases are now suddenly surging to new heights. The CDC uh, data shows that Vermont had the 12th highest COVID case rate in the nation as of November 9th, 21. Over the previous seven days, cases had increased 42%. It could not have been due to a surge in testing though, as the weekly average test administered had only increased by 9% in that time. What's more, during the first week in November, the hospital admission rate for patients who were fully vaccinated increased by 8%, while the admission rate for those who were not fully vaccinated actually decreased by 15%. It is beyond obvious that the vaccines are failing. The case rate in Vermont is far higher now than it was in the fall of 2020, when no one had gotten the vaccine. Breakthrough cases among the fully vaccinated shot up 31% during the first week of November. Coincidentally, data from physician assistant Deborah Conrad, presented by attorney Aaron Siri, October 17, 2021, shows vaccinated people are nine times more likely 
to be hospitalized than the unvaccinated. The key, however, was in what they counted as vaccinated. Rather than only including those who had gotten the shots two weeks or more before being hospitalized, they simply counted those who had one or more shots regardless of when. This gives us an honest accounting, finally, as explained by Siri, a concerned physician's assistant, Deborah Conrad, convinced her hospital to carefully track the COVID-19 vaccination status of every patient admitted to her hospital, and the result is shocking. As Ms. Conrad has detailed, her hospital serves a community in which less than 50% of the individuals were vaccinated for COVID-19, but yet during the same time period, approximately 90% of the individuals admitted to her hospital were unvaccinated. Uh, even more troubling is uh, that there were many individuals who were young, many who presented with unusual or unexpected health events, and many who were admitted months after vaccination. Despite these troubling findings, health authorities ignored Conrad when she reached out. In mid-July 2021, Ceres Law Firm also sent a formal letter to the CDC, the Health and Human Services Department, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration on Conrad's behalf, and those were ignored as well. This again highlights the importance of never permitting government coercion and mandates when it comes to medical procedure, Siri writes. One of the most shocking details gleaned from Conrad's data collection is that the only way you can get those numbers is if vaccinated people are nine times more likely to be hospitalized than the unvaccinated. It is mathematically impossible to get those numbers any other way. Indeed, the more data we gain access to, the worse it looks for those COVID shots. Unfortunately, those who push them seem hell-bent on ignoring any and all data that don't support their stance. Worse, uh, it seems that data and statistics are being intentionally manipulated by our health authorities to present a false picture of safety and effectiveness. All such tactics are indefensible at this point, and people who believe the official narrative without doing their own research do so at their own risk. The source for this podcast is Dr. Joseph McCullough, who has fact-checked it. Please pass this podcast uh, which is found at www.freedomfromaddiction.libson.com, spelling Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N, without spaces or capitals, to your family, friends, and associates, so that they too can hear the truth just below the surface. All right, that was Freedom from Addiction, Truth Just Below the Surface, and the Neil Haley Show. When it just, it's amazing to think about uh just what's happening now uh when you talk about that and we 
the Israeli studies three months ago proved that fact because they were fully vaccinated and they were the more hospitalized for COVID. And now after we've hit this certain vaccination rate in certain places, we're seeing the same things. And it's, 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 it's a disappointment that they're going to continue to push this narrative. It's uh, unfortunately that they push this narrative 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, 